As you know, and I know, that um, this is an important part of the year. Uh, this is the time of year when people are looking for the upper taker, are looking for the Lord to return. And of course, in the Old Testament, as you study the various feasts, uh, it's laid out pretty, pretty simple as, um, you know, the Passover, Christ becoming sin, and then no sin, no leaven, and then you have, you know, the, the resurrection, the first fruits from the dead, and, uh, and then you have the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost, then you've got the rapture taking place, what we believe is the Feast of Trumpets, and also the uh, tribulation period of time of the atonement and so forth, and people kind of supposed to be thinking about what God's doing. In other words, he's going to whoop them until they do, and then he's going to come back in power and great glory and um, set up his kingdom upon the earth. And then, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, where as a remembrance of what was going on in the the wilderness, they all had to, you know, build little booths and they lived in tents because they weren't in their homeland. And so all these things are laid out, I believe, by the Apostle Paul in the book of First and Second Corinthians. So what I wanted to simply do was just uh, show you a few of the things that uh, the Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is able to go back to the Old Testament and pull some of these same truths that we've got here on the, like on a timeline, but he doesn't use it as a timeline, only that he uses the truth in it to teach by and showing how it's supposed to apply to you and I. So um, if you will just take, for example, and leave your little form out there so you can look at it at, you know, different times, but look there in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a tremendous verse there that because Christ was our Passover, he became sin, the Bible says. So if he's the Passover, and that's the first feast that we celebrate, and um, of course the timing of this in the springtime, because there's four of these feasts in the spring, three in the fall, seven total. And it represents at different times of the year their understanding of what God's going to do. And so there were these feasts, and of course everyone should uh, be thankful that we like feasts. Everybody likes feasts. We like feasts around here. Every third Sunday we feast. And uh, when you don't know what to bring, they always bring chicken. I wonder if that's what we're going to eat at the, you know, marriage supper of the lamb, chicken. I wonder if there's another kind of a fish or a food that we haven't never ate before. Is it going to be some of the same old stuff we've had down here? Or is it going to be different kinds of food? I, I don't know. But whatever it is, aren't you thankful for taste buds? Taste buds. There's something about taste buds that just loves chocolate. Love chocolate. And uh, sometimes we go play a little golf, they have a, a little basket there with all these little bits of pieces of chocolate. About ten different kinds of chocolate. So I have to get a couple of each. <clears throat> Kind of gives you a little energy, you know, when you're kind of running out of energy in that old hot sun. But, man, I love chocolate. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So he was made sin for us. This was for the purpose of being the 
Passover. So, yes, in the book of Corinthians, there's talk about Christ as the Passover. And this is what he has done for us. Now, take your Bible and look in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a, a little story about a, a problem they were having in this church. And remember, as you study the book of 1 Corinthians, it's almost like the children of Israel been in the wilderness. Buddy, did they have problems. Boy, were they rebellious. Uh, they didn't seem to be able to do anything right in spite of all that God has done for them and how he was leading and guiding them. And he even refers to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about all the things that God has done. And he even refers back to when Israel was in the wilderness and how that they were all under the cloud. They all had one leader, Moses, and how that they were all baptized and so forth. All these things that's mentioned there. And he says all these things that happened to them are for a warning so that you don't do what they did. So whenever you trusted Christ as your Savior, it's just kind of like everybody goes through a period of, um, you know, a little rebellion in their upbringing. And as you're learning how to walk with the Lord and living in the wilderness sometimes. And it was only 11 days journey from the time they crossed the Red Sea into the promised land from Cadiz Barnea. But that took them 40 years. And a lot of Christians, it takes them about 40 years to go an 11 days journey. Doesn't have to be that way, but because we're just so naturally rebellious. We don't like to be told what we can and cannot do. We don't like to listen. We, we have our old sinful nature, and so that's what we do. But in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, as they kind of like in a wilderness experience with all their rebellion and stuff, going their own way, he says here in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, so it is a sign that God's people are supposed to gather together. You say, well, I'm a member of the church, but I don't have to belong, and I don't have to do this, and I can go whenever I want. Well, we can be a maverick, and you can be rebellious. That's the signs of a rebellious person talking. But he makes a statement. When you are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of a, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one. Now, there was a, an individual who was, um, you could call it today, living in sin. Or shacking up with somebody he shouldn't have. And, um, and people knew about it. But nobody wants to say anything about it because nobody wants to cause somebody to feel bad about it. And so you don't have to worry about it. As, as long as I'm the preacher, I will say something about it. I will say what I believe is right and wrong. And I will say that that is wrong and it is sin. They have just come out now with don't ask, don't tell, it's been repealed. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And so now uh, anybody can do whatever they want to do, but you're not supposed to say anything because, see, that could be a hate crime. Just saying the word can become a hate crime. And so you're not supposed to say anything against the gays or the homosexuals. You're not supposed to say things like that because that offends them. I wonder if anybody ever thinks about all the profanity that you hear that offends me. I, I, I'm offended by that. So, so they ought to quit all of that. What, 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 I wonder if that'll fly. I doubt it. Uh, they probably don't care what I think. They probably don't care what Christians think about anything. But as long as we don't offend them, it's okay for them to offend us. Well, I think the Bible says something like that. That those that live godly will suffer persecution. But, okay, if it says anything about the Bible, about, you know, men with men and women with women, we've got to cut that out of the Bible. Adultery, well, we've got to cut that out of the Bible. 
Uh, anything that does anything that causes somebody to feel bad, well, hell, oh, that just causes mental anguish. Ooh, got to cut that out of the Bible. By the time we get through, what have we got left? We won't have anything left. So I think we ought to just leave everything in here and just tell it like it is. So here in uh, this chapter, there's a guy that's uh, sleeping with his, uh, his dad's wife, I guess. Uh, some have questions on that, but whatever it is. Probably a stepmother. But it says, to deliver, in verse 5, such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. So, in other words, they were kind of boastful and proud. Hey, we're all under grace. That means we can just live like we please. We can do anything we want to do. We're under grace. Yay! Well, living under grace doesn't mean living under sin. Living under grace is a higher standard than living by the law. You see... Living by grace means you do what God wants you to do because of love. Not because of the law, well, I have to. But when you love the Lord, you can live by grace. And when you live by grace, it's because you'll let his desire and his love for you motivate you to do things the law doesn't even require. So you go beyond that. That's why Christ says in the Old Testament, it says, blah, 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 eye for an eye. But I say unto you. And in the Old Testament, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, it's a higher standard. The law of Christ is higher, believe it or not, than the law of Moses. So anyway, love has its own set of rules. You love your wife, there's rules. There's things you don't say and don't do because you love her. But if you don't love her, then it doesn't seem like matter what you do. So he says here, in these verses, it's talking about the simple little thing of uh, Christ became sin for us. And as he became sin for us, I want you to look there in verse 7. Or excuse me, verse 6, where he says, Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. In other words, a little sin permitted in the church will contaminate the whole church. In other words, when you don't deal with things, it gets worse. A little leaven in your own personal life that maybe nobody else knows about can sooner or later destroy you. You are to deal with everything. God wants his people. Oh, yeah, we know everybody sins. Everybody sins, but God wants you to deal with it. God wants you to still say that it's wrong and it's sinful and you're to confess it to the Lord. And the Bible even talks about let them that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let it not be once named among you. So there are high standards in the Word of God for His children. But a lot of children, you know, we're in the wilderness, and so a lot of them fall. We're still to love, but we're to love according to truth. And so he says here, a little leaven will leaven up the whole lump. You've ever heard, you know, one rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. Well, it does, and it's something, same thing. Look now in verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven. This is like a type of the, this is your old man, your old sinful nature. You see, you were a sinner in God's eyes and now you have been given a new birth. So God says, walk according to the new birth, not the old one. And these feast days that they had, well the first one was Christ is the Passover, and because he's the Passover, that means he became sin for us. Became sin for us, he sacrificed for us, he shed his blood for us, so therefore, uh, 
That's the first feast, and that's what it represents. So uh, that's why you'll find out here in the last part of verse 7, he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. That means without sin. Leaven means with sin. Unleavened means without sin. And the reason you have yeast put into the dough is to make the dough, it rises it. And if it, a little sin causes it to rise, and it does raise the dough. And so that's why a lot of people add a little works to the gospel because it raises the dough. But anyway, as he says here, for, and look at the last part of that verse. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So that feast on the Passover is Christ been sacrificed for us. So now, because that has been done, well, the very next thing is talks about, and if you look on your notes there, is number two, the unleavened bread. God wants you and I to live without sin. You say, well, that's impossible. In the new birth, it's not, but in the old birth, it's a problem. But you and I are supposed to try to live our life as clean, as pure, as holy as we possibly can. And believe it or not, it's the very next thing that's mentioned here. Just like in the feast, look there in verse uh, 8. When he says in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, sin, the old sinful nature, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, Jesus Christ became sin, and then when he paid for our sins, he was without sin. That's why God could cause him to come back from the dead. He was without sin. So the second thing in the feast is without sin, unleavened. That's why when we have the Lord's Supper, we have unleavened bread. It means no yeast in it. It means it's flat and there's no taste hardly to it, nothing. Because when they had the Passover seed, they had to leave in a hurry. And to put yeast into the dough was for it to wait and permeate it and cause it to rise. But because they were in such a hurry... They didn't have the time to take to do that, so they did it without yeast, without leaven, because it represented how quickly they were supposed to be moving. And so they didn't take time for the dough to rise. And so it's Christ died, paid for our sins, and then he was without sin, so now he can come back from the dead. And so that's the first fruit. So if you look at your notes, I want you to take a notice of in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, verse 21, remember he came sin for us. He says, he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. So he took our sins so that we wouldn't have sin, unleavened. And then he talks about the first fruits. Now take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Now this can be worked a lot of ways throughout the, the entire book or the both books. But this is just a few thoughts just to kind of let you see that uh, the, the Apostle Paul uses truth from the Old Testament to teach us things today. And we are living at a time when we want to know, well, when's the next feast day? And uh, some people think, well, it, it could be the next week. Wouldn't it be neat if the next week was the week that we've been waiting for all these years? Now, isn't it amazing, uh, amazing, 
that here we are with the United Nations, all these nations, and what's the main thing on the news about all of this? About a peace tree in Israel. Just a coincidence, huh? At this time of the year, too. Just a coincidence. I mean, it was only talked about 2,500 years ago. And here we are. And it's not between, you know, some other crazy nations. It just happens to always be Israel. And... Um, isn't it wonderful to know, though, that we have all these nations and the United Nations that at least love Israel? I wonder if there are five nations that love Israel. I bet there's not five nations that love Israel. Right now, I'm not even sure if America really, if you had to depend upon our present leaders, are really behind the nation of Israel. I got questions about all of that. But anyway, as we're moving right along, in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, look in verse 12. What's this whole chapter talking about, chapter 15? The what? The resurrection. Because, see, that's, that's the next thing that, uh, you know, happens because of the, the first fruits. See, Jesus Christ was the first one who came back from dead. On his own power. He, remember, when he was here, he raised people from the dead. But he did it. But he came back from the dead. He said, I have power to lay my life down. And I have power to take it up again. Now, you and I may have power to lay our lives down. But you don't have the power to take it up again. So there is a difference. But as you go through here in chapter 15 and verse 12, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's why when we say, you know, Christ rose again, he rose again. Doesn't mean he rose one time before. Now he's rising again, like he done done it twice now. It just simply means he was alive and he died and he's alive again. Because to rise from the dead means to live again. So Christ rose again means he lives again. He was alive, and he died, and he uh, rose again. It means he's alive. He still is alive. And he hadn't died since then, by the way, in case y'all didn't know that. He's still alive. And so he said, and if in verse 13, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found Jehovah's Witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain and you're yet in your sins. So um, it's making it pretty clear that if Christ didn't come back from the dead, uh, we're still in our sins because Christ didn't die for our sins and he didn't come back from the dead. Him coming back from the dead is the, the proof of payment. The proof of payment. It's been paid in full. And God is satisfied. And that he was without sin and came back from the dead. Now get this. He says in verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I have hope not only in this life, but also in the next life. Why? Because if I die physically, I know 
that he can raise my body from the dead. Now, remember this. Some people believe that whenever you die, you're sleeping in the body. Call it soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists believe this. And there's others like Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe you're dead at all. You're just in your body, and it's your body that's dead. You are your body. But uh, that's a lot of weird teaching out there. Uh, let me just throw this out there to you. Uh, I mean, there's no extra charge for this. Uh, you know, we got candidates that are running for office and so forth. And so I am a very conservative type of an individual. And uh, I, uh, I, I listen to the various candidates and so forth. But I also want to know where they, where they stand uh, according to their religious beliefs. You say, well, I don't think that matters. It most certainly does. Your religion is the basis of your governmental philosophy. What you believe spiritually about God or the Bible, it affects your belief. If a man was an atheist, do you think it's going to determine some of his decisions? If you're a humanist educator, it will affect your decisions. And, of course, if you're a Christian, it's probably going to affect your decisions. Mormonism is not Christian. The religion of Mormonism is not Christian belief. It is not Christian faith. Uh, they have their Pearl of Great Price. They got their Book of Mormons. It's not the Bible. It's not compatible with the Bible. And if you ever studied their religion, which I have done, I have read their books, it is heresy. It is not Bible. And there's no connection between the two. They are not considered Christian because it is a cult. It means they have an extra biblical source of authority. It means that they don't just believe this. They have confidence in other men who wrote other books that are in conflict with this. And they are not of God. So therefore, whenever I hear different ones that are running, I'm not interested that much in just, well, they, they have conservative views. I want a man that I believe God can bless and that I can pray because if he makes an error, I can pray and believe that the Holy Spirit can deal with that individual if he knows the Lord. I, I believe that it's, it works better. God says to put in righteous people. And righteous people doesn't mean that you just live because you live right. It's because also you, you believe right. You have the right faith. And I believe what a man believes is very, very important. So anyway, I, I told you there was no, no charge for that there. But now go back here. Look there in verse 20. In verse 20, but now, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Now, as you go through here, it seems like the Apostle Paul is using some of the scriptures in the Old Testament. And you'll find that, that out of all the books that he wrote, that God used them to write. A, a, a lot of Old Testaments is found in these books. And you'll notice that whenever he refers to the first fruits, as mentioned like in Leviticus 23, well, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And look at it. He's talking about the resurrection. See what he says in verse, um, just to jump down there, look in verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, they that are Christ at his coming. So the first fruit. So we talk about the first fruit. Well, that's when Christ came back from the dead. 
that's the next one. And if you go according to your thing right there, uh, that's, that's the third thing that's mentioned there too. That's the third feast. So it's like it's in order. And all those things that were done back there, Paul is showing that, hey, this, this is when Christ did this. This is when Christ did this. This is when Christ did this. So we don't have to hope and guess that that's what those things are referring to. God's word says that. I got it right here. God says this is what that is referring to. And so um, it keeps us from having to guess. So in verse uh, 20, look what he says. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, that's the first Adam. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Those that are in Christ are all made alive. It means you'll live forever. If you're born of the first Adam, you're all going to die. But if you're in the second Adam, Christ, you're going to live. Uh, look what he says there in verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, Christ, was made a quickening spirit. So he makes us alive to live forever with the Lord. Now go back there to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. For since by men came also uh, came death, but by men also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all be made alive. But every man in his own order, that means that there is a sequence. There is a plan that God has. There's a timing in which God does what he does. So when you go to Leviticus 23, you're reading about the order, the timing of what God is doing. And now here in the book of 1 Corinthians, as you look at the children of God, uh, it's like we're going through a wilderness, especially these rebellious teenagers, <laughs> kids in the Lord, because they hadn't learned how to walk with the Lord. They weren't matured the Lord. He said, I cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as of the babes in Christ. He said, are you not carnal and walk as lost men, walk as men? And so you have all these things. And so these principles that are taught in the Old Testament, uh, there's a good possibility that the rabbi back then taught the people the exact same thing that Paul is talking to the people here about. Except they would be talking to the Israelites, and here we're talking to the church. And the church is not Israel. These feast days is not about the, uh, for the church in that sense. We don't celebrate these feast days. We simply know that they're there and what they mean and how it's supposed to be explained. And so God explains these truths that they... We're supposed to know and understand. Remember when the Lord was talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus later on says, you mean thou art a ruler in Israel and knoweth not these things? When he talked to him about the new birth, you mean you don't understand that? Of course, Jesus knew the answer, but... In other words, he should have known the new birth. He should have known what it meant. And then he used, the Lord, 
the illustration about raising up the serpent in the wilderness and what it meant. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and that whosoever would look would be saved. That illustration in the Old Testament was a type of the gospel. And yet, he says, you don't understand that? So it's not that it's not there. They just don't understand. It's just like there's truth that God has given for us today. But if you don't read the Bible and study the Bible, of course, you're not going to know it. Does it mean that God didn't tell us? Think of all the people all over the world that don't understand. Is it because God didn't reveal it? God didn't tell anybody? Yeah, he, he told. And he um, said, so why didn't God send somebody there and send somebody there and send somebody there? Well, God has told people to go, and they won't go. There's probably people sitting right here that God told you years ago to go, and you will not go. You did not do it. You were afraid. And years can pass. I remember I was talking to Dr. Stanford one day, and he says when he got ready to quit his job as the national cash register salesman there in Miami, he said he made a profit off of every cash register that was sold in Miami. He said he's going to quit and go full-time with his youth ranch ministry. He said, I didn't have a job. I mean, he said, when he quit that one, he, he didn't have another paying job. Nobody was going to support him. So he walked into the office to tell the guy that he was going to quit and do full-time youth work. And he just knew the guy was going to call him a fool and mock him and make fun of him. And he, he listened to what Ray said and then he got a little teary-eyed. He says, I understand. He said, years ago, I knew that that's what God wanted me to do. And I would not do it. I didn't do it. Oh, yeah, he had the big business, had all these people working for him. But inwardly, he knew he had missed the will of God for his life. And there's a lot of people that probably could have and should have done a lot of things, but they just never did. God doesn't make us servant. He puts it out there and says, here it is. Here's my will. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall find it. And, of course, if you don't do it, you're not going to find your purpose in your life because you forfeited the purpose. And you can do a lot of different things. But what about that one thing that God wanted you to know, that God wanted you to do? So look what he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, where he makes a statement in verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits afterwards. And this is the part that you and I are waiting for. From the resurrection of Christ, from the time he came back as the firstfruits, you notice there is a big gap. And they that are Christ, and what's the next three words? At his coming. So from the resurrection, which is what we have on our little notes, there's not another one until he comes. That's the next sign. That was the next feast. In the Old Testament, it was a feast of trumpets. And for us, that will be, yes, the gathering of Israel together in the tribulation period. And there's going to be this time of suffering and so forth. And repentance and humiliation and chastisement to get Israel's attention. 
and then Christ in glory. And that comes at the end of the tribulation period. So we are waiting for Christ at his coming. Now, he doesn't come to the earth then. It comes only in the air. And then we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so we have about the resurrection. All of this through here is talking about the resurrection. You'll also notice that in the following verses, if you look there in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, around verse 44 and down a few verses, it talks about the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Now, you and I know that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost 50 days later. Well, that's when the church began on the day of Pentecost. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll notice it talks an awful lot about the, um, the baptism and so forth of the Holy Spirit. Where it says in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he says in verse 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles. So there you're talking also about what took place on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came and took the believing Jews and put them into the body. And then in chapter 10, when he took the Gentiles that believe and put them into the body. And all believing Jews and Gentiles since that time have all been placed into the body of Christ. And then the time will come when all of this is going to be over. And the Lord is going to come back. Now, isn't it amazing that, well, the next thing to happen should be, well, something exciting. Look in verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, this is not a truth that was known before. It is now being revealed for the first time. That's what the word mystery means. It was hidden in ages past. And there's hints of types and things like that that God uses of people just disappearing. In the paper this morning, somebody had wrote a book on about the rapture and mocked it and made fun about it. Maybe some of y'all saw that. And I said, to it, I thought, how stupid. Mocking the Bible. God pity the man who mocks the Bible, makes fun of what God's Word says. Isn't it something that 2,000 years ago God talked about people disappearing from the planet? Just going to disappear from this world. And in uh, the book supposedly that was written, it was not only mocking the idea, it was a question about well, who gets to go. You know, just people vanishing. As though it was a random thing and nobody knew who's going to be the chosen ones. That, that when that moment happens, who gets to go? Well, I already know. All of those who are alive when Christ comes back, who have accepted him as their Savior, who believe that Christ died, paid for all of their sins, ready or not, we're going. Obedient or disobedient, you're out of here. But you see, we've covered all these different feasts just from the teaching in one book. But look what he says in verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So the teaching is right here in the Word of God about Christ coming, and we are going to be changed and so forth. 
Now, understand this. Why do we have to be changed? Well, because, see, we're going to be living forever, and the body's not up to the job. Haven't you noticed that your physical body is not up to the job? Uh, you'd like for it to be. We try to prolong no death as long as we can because nobody really wants to die. And we'd like to stay alive as long as we can. But the purpose of the, of the little boost that they had to make and a type of living in the wilderness, you know, in the tents and so on. Uh, well, it was interesting that I wonder if that would be covered in Corinthians 2 anywhere, you know. Well, we know the Bible says that Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, that he, he tabernacled among us. means that he dwelt among them. Uh, he was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and all that, you know. But that's in the book of John chapter 1 and verse 14. But look there in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. Talking about you and I living in this world in a tent. Living in a tent. Your body is a, a, like a tent. It's temporary. And so... Um, you can either be content in the tent or discontent, but you are in a tent. Verse 1, for we know that if our earthly house of this, and what's the word? Tabernacle. See, there's going to be what they call the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, see, this takes place right after the 10 days of the, the Feast of Trumpets. And so you have a, a time period where God's people, in remembrance of what they've gone through, and time of their, right before this was their eating of the bitter herbs and all these things, you know. But here, and also in the book for the Passover. But here in verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, this tabernacle, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, I don't want to be just a, a spirit floating around. I, I'd rather have a, I want a body. And when I look at you, I'd rather have a, I see you in a body. <laughs> and, and then still fully clothed. But anyway, we're moving right along here. He says in verse 4, For we that are in this tabernacle... Do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of eternal life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given to us the earnest or the down payment of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But the body that you and I have is a tabernacle. It is like a tent that we're living in, in this wilderness, in this world. And there are things that God has laid out for the real nation of Israel. And you and I, well, we're people just like their people. But they're the nation of Israel, and we're, we're the church. And so God says that the day will come when we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 
And then there's still the seven-year tribulation upon the earth. And then Christ comes back to the earth in power, great glory, and then they will be in the kingdom upon the earth. And they'll have glorified bodies. Oh, we will. And we know how important it is for us to understand that God is in charge and he has a, a time schedule. And he talks about the fullness of times and when the fullness of time become in. God is right on schedule. Is it not true that Jesus Christ was born on time? When Jesus Christ went up into the air, it was right on time. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, it was 50 days right on schedule. God is an orderly God, and he's always on time. Did you realize if the Lord came back today, we only got seven years for the tribulation, and then we'll be in the millennium. Did you realize that just seven years from now, we could be standing in glorified bodies in a paradise upon this earth? Never to hurt, suffer anymore, but to worship the Lord and knowing that we were on the winning side. We won. And the saints will possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. So between now and then, keep looking up. Don't be down and disheartened because of what you see coming. Because if you keep looking a little bit further, you can see something else coming. A lot, lot better and a lot brighter and more wonderful than anything we could ever imagine. And so there's an awful lot of what God's Word has to say in the book of First and Second Corinthians. Look up here. If you're here and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, I know. You'll get saved by and by. One of these days, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Always intending to, but why not right now? Take care of it. This hand represents you and me. The wallet represents sin. It's something that all of us have done. Whatever it is, you did it. <laughs> so did I. We have all sinned and come short of God's perfection. Nobody's perfect. And God says that we have to pay for it. And the wages of sin is death and hell. That's why everybody dies. But God loves us. Did you know that God loves you? And he proved his love for you because he wants you to go to heaven. But you have to be perfect and you're not. You see, we committed the sins and we got to pay for them. So there's no way for us to go to heaven. We can't go to heaven. Impossible. Unless God does something for us. God says you can't earn eternal life. You can't work your way there. You'll never be good enough. That just makes you a religious hypocrite. This hand represents Jesus Christ. He's the Lord God in the flesh. He came into the world because he loves us. Hates our sin because it separates us from him. So Jesus Christ, who had no sin, didn't have to die. But he took ours. Died for us. Died in my place. Died and paid for my sins. Well, if he paid for my sins, wouldn't it be crazy and dumb on my part to go to hell and pay for them? When he paid for them? You don't have to pay for something twice. All I have to do is believe he did it for me. Just think of all the things in all the world. God made it so simple. If you'll believe I did it for you, I'll give you eternal life. And you get to go to heaven on what I did for you. How much easier could he have made it? It's the easiest thing in all the world. 
How can you go wrong by trusting the only true and living God there is? You don't become a religious hypocrite. You're not claiming to stop something or be something or join something. You don't have to live a certain way, make promises and pledges you'll never keep. All you got to do is, I'm a sinner. I believe Christ paid for my sins. And I'm trusting him to take me to heaven when I die. How simple. How easy. Best news in all the world. I pray that you have the good sense to trust the Lord. Let's pray, shall we? And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you trust him? Would you believe that he died for you? I'm not asking you to sign anything or to do anything. I just want you right where you are. Will you trust the Lord? God said if you would trust him as your Savior, he would save you right now from hell and give you right now eternal life. And you can know that you're going to heaven whenever you die. Don't you want to be one of those saints that lives forever with the Lord? I do. I'm glad I took care of that years ago. So with heads bowed, nice closed, and no one looking around, I'm going to ask you in just a moment that if what I said made sense to you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Raising your hand is not going to save you. It just lets me know that what I said made sense to you. And friend, I'd like to know. And I'd like to have prayer for you in closing. That's all. So if you've already trusted the Lord, you don't have to do it again. But if you never have, and you want to say, I want to be sure I'm going to heaven when I die. And preacher, would you pray for me? Would you slip your hand up very quickly and put it right back down? Is it anyone at all? No tricks to it. No gimmicks to it. I pray that you have trusted Christ as Savior. Our Father, we do thank you so much for the free gift of eternal life and for giving us your word so we can understand the things that are coming upon the earth. Help our hearts to be knit together in love for one another and help us to reach as many as we can while we can. Lord, we know we may not be able to change the world, but do, we do want to make sure the world doesn't change us. Help us to do right and to live godly as we should and looking for you to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.